And joining me, Erica, in our virtual studio is Tiffany and Gabby. Hello. 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 Today our topic is Hands Off My Lady Bits, <laughs> The Medical Mismanagement of Female Health. Well, since the the guys aren't here, Doug, Jonathan, and Elliot are all off doing something, we thought this would be a good time to be able to talk about vaginas and ovaries and cervixes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and pregnancy and birth. And so our show description is how many ladies out there have had their yearly pelvic exam? What about mammograms? Did you have a natural birth or a C-section? And have you ever woken up from minor surgery to find your ovaries missing? Oh. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> the world of allopathic medicine is fraught with malpractice, and the field of women's health comes with its own set of dangers. So today we're going to discuss a few of these things, and we do always encourage people, if they'd like to call in and share your stories. Yeah, whether it's a birth story or a trip to the gynecologist or a mammogram story, we'd like to hear about it. Or you can share in the chat. Yeah. So we're just going to have a discussion about it and share our experiences. So we figured a good place to start today would be with pregnancy, mm -hmm. the beginning of life, <laughs> and delivery, and how it's changed over the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things that we usually do for our show is is read all the articles and then Usually we have a documentary that's pretty disturbing. <laughs> and so for this week, and we recommend for anybody who's interested in this topic, there's a documentary that came out, I think, in 2008 called The Business of Being Born. Mm -hmm. And it was made by Ricky Lake, who... She used to have her own talk show, The Ricky Lake Show. The Ricky Lake Show. <laughs> Fascinating documentary about... Home birth versus hospital birth and the change over time of the experience. And um, it, it was very, very enlightening. I learned a lot of things I didn't know. And, mm -hmm. and I've had two births myself. So I, it was very moving um, just watching these women struggle with being pregnant to start with and then what to do when it came to delivery. Yeah, there are lots of <clears throat> lots of clips of actual real women giving birth. It was quite beautiful. Yeah. I was almost moved to tears every time. <laughs> I was definitely moved to tears because it is a very emotional experience and I, I kinda think for the, the takeaway of the documentary and at least Ricky Lake shared this throughout the film was that it's a whole process that needs to happen to kind of make a woman realize that she has the strength to do that mm -hmm. and go through it and all the emotions that come with it. And when there's medical interventions, say you get pregnant and you decide to have your baby in a hospital, that almost from the get-go you're treated as if you're ill mm -hmm. and that you need to be monitored and messed with and have drugged your up. drugged up and have your weekly checkups or monthly checkups 
Whereas if you do a home birth with a midwife, it's much less invasive. And the midwife is just there to assist in questions and uh, be support. Remind the woman that she can do this. We've been doing this for thousands of years. You know, of course, it's scary. Mm. In the in the film, they also um, mention Ina May Gaskin, and she wrote the book Spiritual Midwifery, a must read for anyone who's going to have children. And she started the farm in Tennessee where they would deliver babies naturally. So it it. I recommend it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people get freaked out when they think about home births and midwives. They picture like a midwife as not having any skill whatsoever, someone who's dirty and like you'll have your baby on the ground or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that a lot of the stereotypes against midwives are kind of propagated by the medical industry because they saw them as competition, which they are, legitimate mm-hmm. competitions. There's a lot less complications with a midwife than they are there are in hospitals and we'll get into the reasons why that is but it's a lot of what the hospitals do and what the doctors do in the hospitals during childbirth that causes a lot of these complications but midwives are very skilled they've been to college they know how to react when there's emergencies they come prepared with like ivs things like that They often have backup in the form of a doctor that they can get in touch with and transfer the mother to the hospital in case something goes wrong. So it's not like it's some backwoods herb woman that's going (laughs) to deliver your baby for you. And a lot of the people who get scared and freaked out, a lot of doctors, a lot of these doctors have never even witnessed a home birth or a natural birth or any birth that has taken place outside of a hospital. Yeah. So they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> but if we look at it, like through history, in 1900, 95% of births happened at home. In 1938, half of all births happened at home. And then beginning in 1955, less than 1% of births happened at home. And it's still that way. It's very rare for a woman to give birth at home. And what's interesting is in Europe and Japan, midwives still attend over 70% of births Mm -hmm. and in the U.S. only 8%. And and I will say from personal experience in certain states, midwifery is still illegal Mm. so that maybe you have a midwife, but she's not allowed in the hospital. And it can cause Mm. controversy for sure. I know in the state of Hawaii, it's illegal to have a midwife. And so there's a lot of organizations that are just trying to get information out there that, as Tiffany said, these aren't old crones that just show up at the birth with a towel and hope for the best. You know, I mean, they've delivered hundreds of babies in, you know, backwards, forwards, face down, Mm -hmm. complications and whatnot. And, I mean, experience is a lot more than, like you said, Tiffany, a doctor never actually being at a birth. Mm Mm-hmm. And we have to keep in mind, too, that obstetricians are surgeons. That's how they make their living, by doing surgeries. They really shouldn't be delivering babies for women who are not high risk. See, And in a hospital, they say, like, the medical decisions are being made for legal and monetary reasons and not for the health of the baby Mm -hmm. or the mom. 
So in the U.S., most uh, childbirths are attended by gynecologists, obstetricians, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That's interesting. Because, well, um, the healthcare system that I'm used to, the one in Costa Rica and then Spain, is actually, I don't know if it's uh, it's the same, but it's the nurse who specializes in this, like a, yeah, like a midwife. Mm -hmm. And uh, they do everything, basically. And they just call the obstetrician gynecologist just when it is necessary. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. Well, that explains no a lot of things. American women have more complications <laughs> see, yeah. than women in other countries. Yeah, like the U.S. has the second most, um, what is it, newborn death rate in the world. Huh. So with all this medical intervention and the scare mo fear tactics and mm -hmm. scaremongering, we're like last. <laughs> and I mean, and all the money that is spent, oh, makes me mad. Yeah, a lot of intervention doesn't necessarily lead to greater outcomes. So do we want to talk about epidurals? <laughs> yeah, I think so because that, I think that's. That's one of the key differences because, in theory, whether it's a midwife or an obstetrician, it should be the same thing, you know. <laughs> like, you know, the woman basically does everything and you're just there to, like, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> like, for support, basically. <laughs> yeah. So, one thing that I didn't know that I learned recently that epidurals are derived from cocaine. <gasps> I know. And the actual first epidural was a doctor that injected cocaine into a patient's back. Was that 1885, Dr. Yeah. Corning? <laughs> so when you get an epidural, you're getting a coke shot in your spinal column. And those are really, really, really long needles, too. I've seen one done. It wasn't pretty. It's good that the mother can't see the needle because it's going into her back. If she saw it, she probably would freak out. Well, you do have to sign a waiver, too, that if they inadvertently puncture your spinal cord and you are paralyzed, that you won't sue the hospital. Mm -hmm. So that could be a big determining factor on whether or not someone wants an epidural. Also, yeah. today, epidurals are the most popular method of pain relief during labor, and this is a 2006 statistic, but uh, listening to sur mother's survey, 75% of laboring mothers received an epidural. That's really high. Mm. In the U.S., right? Yes, in the U.S. That's crazy high. That's crazy. Yeah. I have uh, the experience that I had for um, childbirths. Um, I did an internship in Costa Rica in 2001, and the population, uh, uh, childbearing population in Costa Rica, it's all women are in the 20s. There will mm -hmm. be a, a lot of teenagers as well, but I just remember one woman being 35, and everybody was like, whoa, <laughs> and no epidurals for anybody. It's just out of the question, you know, it's uh, not affordable by the system back then. Mm -hmm. And no epidurals. So I did another rotation in, obst in obstetrics like a year and a half ago. And this was in Spain. I was shocked that every single woman had an epidural. I said, what? 
you know, it's crazy to to see a woman. She can barely move. How can you, how are you going to give a childbirth? You can't even move, you know. <laughs> it's crazy. And I did notice more complications, like um, more vaginal tear, but mm -hmm. serious vaginal tear and more forceps. I barely saw forceps. In Costa Rica, there were like a lot of uh, women giving birth every single day in the hospital. Like we don't have a depopulation problem there. You know? <laughs> and, and Spain does have a depopulation problem. You can barely see a, child, a woman giving you know, birth, you know. Mm. And all of them that I saw, yeah, forceps, like severe vaginal tears. I was like, wow, this is crazy. And all the women were like in 30s, late 30s, some in the 40s. Wow. But there. <laughs> well, one of our commenters, uh, commenters, comments was that uh, about uh, how his uh, daughter's mother had an episiotomy as the doctor thought she would tear. So that's maybe for our listeners, Gabby, you can let yeah. us know what an episiotomy is. It's basically a cut made with uh, scissors and uh, obliquely done <laughs> down the canal down there. And when I was in Costa Rica, we were told specifically never to do it because mm -hmm. if a woman gives childbirth naturally, you know, just be, she does everything. You just like, you're just waiting there, like, you know, just to receive the baby or give it to her. Um, if there is a vaginal tear, it would mostly be like, uh, we have it by degrees. One degree being the, the more, ben the most benign one. And then goes two, three, four and four involves a vaginal tear right uh, down to your rectum where you poop, you know, mm -hmm. that's pretty big. And they, they notice that if you don't do an episiotomy, the worst case scenario is a um, uh, two degree vaginal tear, which is like, you know, and uh, an episiotomy is um, classified as a vaginal two, uh, uh, a grade two vaginal tear. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we're told that never do it basically. Yeah, I've yeah. always read that if you tear naturally during the natural process of birth, it has a better chance of healing versus being cut through an episiotomy. But <laughs> one thing I want to mention, because uh, we've talked about this before, um, beware of people who want to relieve your suffering. I mean, childbirth is a hard thing. It's painful, yes. But you come out on the other side. Women have been giving birth since the beginning of time, way before epidurals came along. And to try and take away that natural process, maybe it's strengthening for a woman. I don't know. I never had a baby, so I can't really say for sure. But it's kind of like a rite of passage. And if you drug that out of a woman, you can't say really what the bonding experience will be like with the child. You change a lot of factors that you have no idea what the results are going to be. That's what I have to say about that. But I also want to say is like women have this really strong fear about having a baby. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of women want to have a baby. Maybe it's just the pain that they're afraid of. But if you watch TV and you watch movies, like every instance where a woman has a baby, she's like screaming and cursing and acting the fool. And it's just like this big old emergency versus what we saw in the documentary, The Business of Being Born. It was just women walking around in their houses, 
moaning and groaning a little bit and trying to get comfortable and being in different positions. It wasn't like this gigantic freak out where everybody's screaming. So I think that a lot of this fear around childbirth comes from the media and it really shouldn't be that way. I agree. And, um, it's that medical intervention as we talked about in the beginning, like, uh, you know, you're, there's something wrong with you. We need to medically intervene. Mm -hmm. And from the get-go, it cascades downhill really fast. Mm -hmm. I mean, just with the epidural, some of the side effects that happen is longer labor, um, triple risk of the tears we were talking about, uh, increase in C-sections by 2.5%, um, triple the in, uh, occurrence of induction where they use pitocin, and maybe we can go into that a little mm-hmm. bit about what that actually does. Uh, babies being born face up, uh, decreased chances of a vaginal delivery, so C-sections, um, more complications, the, niece, uh, the need for forceps, and um, increased risk of pelvic floor problems. And we'll get into that when we talk about hysterectomies as mm-hmm. well, because that's really scary stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, for the baby, you know, basically the baby's getting a shot of cocaine while it's being born. Doesn't <laughs> sound like a good start to life. Yeah. So it's just one in a series of birth traumas that babies can go through. And epidurals also shut down beta endorphins like morphine-like qualities uh, that the mother experiences as she's giving birth and right after that helps her bond with her baby. If she gets an epidural, that kind of goes away. Yeah, and they also reduce the or decrease the uh, fetal heart rate. So, again, you're in the hospital, you've been laboring for 12 or 13 hours, you're getting tired. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you get the epidural, you think, okay, now now I'm going to do it, and the baby's heart rate starts to get erratic, and then all of a sudden, they're like, well, we're just going to cut it out. Mm-hmm. And it's all because of the intervention that they gave you. Yeah. It probably wouldn't have happened if she hadn't gotten the epidural. But I think, what is it, C-sections, they're just going through the roof, especially in the United States. Like there's some women who try to schedule a C-section around a certain date or the doctor, even worse, wants to schedule a C-section to fit (laughs) his personal schedule. Yeah, what what what, they were calling it, women too posh to push. (laughs) So they were talking about superstars, right? And I can't name any of the superstars, but these, they call it an elective Mm C-section. And I mean, with that 75% C-section rate, you know, I don't want to push. I don't want to have to work. I don't want to go through the pain. Just schedule me a C-section in and out, and here's your baby. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. It's a major surgical intervention. Yeah, that's major, major, major surgery. I've witnessed the C-section. It, it was not pretty. I've witnessed a, a regular vaginal birth in a C-section, and the C-section was like something out of the movie Aliens. It was just awful to see. Fortunately, the mother and the baby turned out fine, but uh, it wasn't cute at all. 
Well, I know with C-sections too, to get in there, they have to actually cut the core muscle Mm -hmm. to get in. I mean, and just think of the recovery time of that. And then the baby doesn't have the chance to have its brain stimulated by going through the birth canal, right? So they come out lethargic mm -hmm. and... And the baby doesn't get the beneficial bacteria that it would get if it actually went through the birth canal. And if you don't get that bacteria, you're at risk for higher risk for uh, immune disorders, obesity, diabetes. And even in the film, Tiffany and I were talking about, they they did talk to OBGYNs and and. They did say, you know, the first C-section, and especially if there's a distress and the the baby and the mom's life is in danger, of course. Mm -hmm. But after the first one, the second, third, and up to the fifth one can be super detrimental Mm -hmm. to a woman's health. Mm -hmm. And infection is the biggest concern, right? Because it's major surgery. Mm -hmm. And a lot of doctors, if you've already had a C-section, they will not allow you to deliver vaginally after that. It's kind of a controversy to have a vaginal birth after already having had a C-section. So, pitocin. Because this is another thing, you know, 10 hours, 12 hours, nothing's happening. Granted, you're in a hospital, so you may not feel very comfortable. Mm -hmm. And the doctor's got to play golf or get home to his wife. And they don't want to be up all night. Let's get this going. Get the show on the road. (laughs) So what does the pitocin do? Why would you do that? Well, it's a synthetic form of oxytocin, right? And it's supposed to strengthen the force of the contractions and uh, cause the labor to start. And so some of the side effects of that are? (laughs) Well, the contractions can be too strong and it can cause fetal distress, Mm -hmm. which can also be another reason why they would do a C-section on you. Yeah, I was going to say, which will end up in a cesarean. (laughs) Boy, I see. And so another drug that is given during birth, and this completely blew my mind, is scopolamine mm-hmm. and um, basically it's drugs during I don't know is it a shot or in a in a IV I think it can be a pill and I know I think they used to use it in hospice not so much anymore uh, they used to have patches wow yeah so basically if you decide not to get the epidural but you want the drugs right mm-hmm. so you want the pain medication this is what they'd give you the scopolamine and it sounds like it doesn't actually dull the pain in any way it creates what they call a twilight sleep mm-hmm. and it makes the woman forget so back to what tiffany was saying about women you know going crazy and screaming and yelling and you know they were saying that could actually be a side effect of the scopolamine and mm-hmm. not the nece- necessarily the birth, the labor. Wow. And that's given like a, as a routine to all women given birth? Yes. That's and crazy. No long-term research on the effects of this intervention. I think it started back in the 1900s back in Germany. There was a doctor that was using this and then 
women started demanding a pain-free birth or just go to sleep and wake up and have the baby. But the thing is, a lot of these women woke up and they didn't even remember having given birth and they bring the baby into them. They don't recognize the baby. <laughs> I mean, if it was me, I'd be like, whose baby is this? I don't trust that this is my baby. But it, it's another thing that completely eradicates that whole bonding between mother and baby that happens during childbirth. But I forgot to mention that we actually have a clip. <laughs> we have a clip about epidurals in the hospital and all the medical interventions. So we can play that. that. In the hospital, you're not allowed to have very long labors. So if you're not dilating rapidly, which you're likely not to do if you get an epidural early in labor, you will be given Pitocin. They'll put the Pitocin in the IV. It will flow into your veins. Pitocin makes contractions longer and stronger and closer together. So then the pain of labor is much worse. So you go with that for a while because you have the epidural, but eventually the pain of the contractions is overwhelming the epidural. You need to up the epidural, and then labor slows down more because of that, so then you need more Pitocin. Now, you're not feeling the pain of the extra Pitocin because you've got the epidural, but your baby is getting compressed blood and oxygen supply because Pitocin contractions last so long and are so strong, the blood and oxygen flow to the baby is compromised. So then the baby's likely to go into distress, and then you're sent off for an emergency cesarean from a baby in distress from contractions induced by the Pitocin, which was necessitated by the epidural. Step by step, one intervention leads to a series of interventions, and the net result is the mother finally ends up with a cesarean, and everybody says, thank God we were able to do all those interventions to save your baby. The fact of the matter is, if they didn't start the cascade of interventions, none of that would have been necessary. There is clearly an association with induction of labor and cesarean delivery. People don't have the information. When you look at obstetrics in general, there's been a series of very intense interventions that physicians have been doing day in and day out to millions of women, and there's not a medically justified reason for doing those things. Even common sense. I mean, the idea of lying down with your legs up being the most comfortable or logical position to give birth. is stupid. <laughs> what she wanted to say. <laughs> I thought she was going to say, like, it's a torture device. It looks like one. <laughs> yeah, it really doesn't make any sense. Why would you lie down on your back and not rely on gravity to help your baby come out? It just doesn't make any sense. And when they s s talk to the doctors, you, you get these clips of the doctors going, come on, you can do this. You know, you're fine. Just breathe. <laughs> you know, you're like... Everything about her position right now is not, gravity is not working in her mm -hmm. favor. That's like lying flat on your back to take a poop. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, yeah. <laughs> See? Well, one of our chatters did say, uh, this is horrifying considering what we now know about developmental trauma and birth complications. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, if the mom is completely checked out, drugged, allegedly not feeling pain, mm -hmm. you don't have the experience. I mean, I went through it 20 years ago and I didn't have drugs and I didn't have the epidural, but I was in a hospital and I was totally freaked out. Mm -hmm. I hadn't been in a hospital since I was, I don't know, five. So that alone, the smells. And when you're going through labor, 
everything is heightened. Your mm-hmm. your sense of smell, your sense of se- sensitivity, um, your fear, you know, what if I die? What if my baby dies? And you got nurses coming in and out. They're hooking you up. I had an IV, the fetal monitor. I mean, it, it was stressful. Mm-hmm. And for me, what I ended up doing was just kind of checking out. Uh, I had read this uh, book, and I, I'll remember the name later, but it basically was about focusing your attention on something. And I remember it being the emergency water, you know, fire thing in the room, like the on the ceiling. And I just kept focusing on that. The sprinkler? The sprinkler, yes. Mm. And I literally like left my body and just kind of watched what was happening. But you go through transition and that's why they call it. So the first 10 hours, maybe you're, you know, a little stomachache, this and that. And then all of a sudden everything picks up and that's when you got to deliver the baby. And, uh, you you shift and what they talk about in spiritual midwifery the book and in the documentary is is like an outer body experience and you have to rectify with yourself you're between a rock and a hard place you're either going to be pregnant forever or the mm-hmm. baby's going to come out and mm-hmm. and that's the changing moment and that's usually when women deliver mm-hmm. you know so I call it the moment when you put your big girl panties on <laughs> and do what needs to be done. <laughs> but if you never get the chance to put your big girl panties on, then you kind of stay in this stunted state, maybe. Yeah. But again, I can't speak from experience. But the whole thing about all this interventions, like if you can't feel your contractions and you can't push as well as you could have if you hadn't gotten epidural, the doctor might use forceps. Sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, that can cause maybe some fractures to the skulls or bruising for the baby or having like little dents in their head when they're born. It's painful the for the baby. Yeah, that's a, a trauma for the baby. And sometimes I use this like vacuum sucker outer thingy to help get the oh, baby that's out. Worse. Yeah. yeah, or they're reaching in and trying to pull the baby out. That's traumatic for the baby. And this is all like pre-verbal stuff that the child cannot, you know, uh, articulate. Mm-hmm. And they have all this trauma when they're when they're The whole children. thing together, it could be much worse than doing a circumcision without, you know, anesthetics or, mm-hmm. both, you know. Pretty bad. And well, then on top of it, they immediately clamp the umbilical cord. <laughs> and they stop the flow of... Uh, very nutrient dense and oxygen dense umbilical cord blood that actually increases the baby's survival rate if they don't clamp the cord. And all they have to do is wait for just one minute mm-hmm. before they do it. And they yeah. wash, and we've talked about this in a previous show, they wash all the like, vernix, I mm-hmm. believe it's called, like the white. It's almost like a Vaseline. It's what the baby's been covered in while it's been in the womb and it's it's like really hard to get off so they like are you know scrubbing the baby off pull it <laughs> so away from stuff. the baby of the mom wash it and then put it in that little essentially incubator thing not an incubator but a bassinet or, mm-hmm. or plastic with a light and it, i mean imagine and then all the vaccinations start <laughs> if that's what i was gonna say and then comes the shot you know <laughs> I mean, hepatitis B for a newborn, you know, that's not going to have sex. I don't know. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
Well, one thing when when I had my first baby and I was in labor for 12 hours, she was six pounds, so she was pretty small. But from being in the birth canal for about two hours, she came out with a severe cone head. And (laughs) my friend was with me. She was my helper in the delivery. And she freaked out and was like, oh, my God, it's the baby. There's something wrong with the baby. It's got this cone head. And then they put those little hats on them, right? Well, that's why they do that. They put those baby hats on them because their head is is like could be very pointy, mm-hmm. but they have that soft spot in the top of their brain so that the skull can shift. Yeah. And it was just so funny because I was, you know, you're so in a different dimension after that. You're just glad you survived and your baby has all 10 fingers and toes. And, <laughs> you know, and then immediately they start asking you, like you said, Gabby, oh, you know, need the hepatitis vaccine, need the um, APGARS test. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're going to put some, what is it, sodium nitrate in the eyes. I mean, it, I got to weigh the baby so they, they take them, <laughs> they take the baby away from the mother because it's got to be measured, weighed. Uh, you know. <laughs> but, but anyway, anyway yeah, yes. go on. I was, no, was, was going to say in these yeah. home birth videos, and a lot of them were delivered in a bathtub, mm-hmm. like uh, Nancy Two Feathers mentioned on the chat, in like a it's, a, it's almost like a blow up pool. A waiting pool. Yeah. And um, what's really interesting about that is that the baby can be underwater and it can still breathe because it's still attached to the umbilical cord. So mm-hmm. it's not like it's going to drown <laughs> in that <laughs> bathtub. But you see that it's all very calm. I mean, yes, she's, you know, going through it, but she's really calm. And the the midwives are telling these women, grab your baby, which I thought was so cool. Uh Yeah. So that's, that's just the start of the medical mismanagement of women's health. Yeah. And on the other side of the story, I was going to say that, okay, if you do a genealogy tree, you'll notice that giving birth to a child was a yeah woman died by the by the thousands in the past mm-hmm. because yes, if it cannot be done naturally, there's complication. Well, what usually happens is that a woman died, mm-hmm. and uh, it was interesting to see that some of the statistics have changed. You know, women that have a very short pelvis, since there are so many. Right now, in so many interventions, they are like surviving and not dying like they did before. Yeah, so, they're passing their yeah. narrow pelvises onto their daughters. Yeah. So, so we want to talk about some other lady bits. Yes. <laughs> labiaplasty. What is, is that? What is labiaplasty? It's a completely voluntary surgery. I don't even know why anybody would think something is wrong with the way my labia looks. Well, other people say it's because they're watching a lot of porn and they're comparing what they look like down there to other women. And they're waxing because normally that area is covered with hair and you don't really see what it looks like. So now you're waxed all the hair off and you think that your labia is ugly. So you go into the plastic surgeon and you have it, I don't know, shaped into a way that's more to your liking. Or shaped in a way that looks more like a little girl. Yeah. And even with birth, 
if you have a tear or a episiotomy, they'll ask, oh, do you want me to sew it up a little bit more? Oh, my God. Yeah. So there's that. So in 2015, there were 400 labiaplasties done on teenage girls and almost 9,000 overall done on women. Teenage girls? So do you have to have parental consent? Doesn't make sense to me at all that anybody would be so concerned. Yeah. I don't know. This probably comes from the porn industry, actually. Mm. I never heard of it ever in my life. <laughs> just like recently and now, you know, it yeah. just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I read it on Signs of the Times. Yeah, that's where <laughs> I get all my news, too. And that's where I first read it. And I was just, like, baffled. Like, why would anybody do this? Does anybody care? Do men care? <laughs> Does anybody say anything about that? So there's that. That's voluntary mutilation. There you go. Sign of yeah. And then there's the involuntary clitoridectomies and female genital mutilation. We could do a different show on that, too. Yeah. Yeah. But these are women voluntarily going in and having their lady bits altered. So do you want to talk about breasts? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> mammograms yes have you have any <laughs> no 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 never had one never had one never will have one <laughs> it just seems painful why would you want to stick your boob between two metal plates and squish it <laughs> <laughs> there you go uh, yeah, well, women queue up to have this done, like, every mm-hmm. two years or so. Yeah, pe- where I work, people always, oh, you need to get your mammogram. If you're a woman over 40, you should have your mammogram done, like, every two years. Or if you're over 50, you should have a mammogram done every year. But they don't mention the fact that while you have your breasts squished between these two metal plates, you're irradiating them. And if you keep doing that year after year after year, it leads to guess what? Cancer of the breast. <laughs> yeah, and even when they find even a remotely suspicious nodule or lesion or whatever, mm-hmm. they tend to overdiagnose, overtreat, and that means another mutilation because it involves, yeah, cutting that bead off. So, what would be an alternative for women? who say they have a history of breast cancer and they're concerned about it, but they don't want to opt for the mammogram. You can do the, the hand where you just <laughs> feel your breasts and feel for tumors because mammograms, they can give false positives, positives, but they can also give false negatives where if you actually do have a tumor, it won't catch it sometimes. <laughs> That's pretty useless as a test. Yeah. Well, and other things too, and I remember reading, and I apologize, I don't have the information in front of me, but they were talking about even things like wearing bras that have underwire, mm-hmm. that the cutting off of the circulation to the breast because of the underwire, and to simply buy bras without underwire. Or don't wear a bra all day long. Yeah. Take your bra off when you're at home. 
like they were talking about in this article about women in Polynesia not having hardly any breast cancer because they just didn't wear bras. Mm -hmm. They were they were speculating that's what uh, that it was because they didn't wear bras. Mm -hmm. That's pretty interesting. Well, another alternative, and I don't know much about this one, but it's a thermogram. Somebody posted that in the chat, and I think it uses like temperature to gauge areas of what might be a, a tumor or not a tumor. Mm -hmm. But they have another mammogram type machine. It's not the typical mammogram, but it has uh, like twice the amount of radiation. It's called a 3D tomosynthesis. Yeah. So twice the amount of radiation, and they recommend that you get both a regular mammogram and that. So you're That's really so smart. <laughs> Some more radiation. And what they fail to mention is that um, a lot of these tumors in the breast are benign. They're not necessarily cancerous. Um, and if you have a mammogram and you're squishing your breast between these hard metal plates, if you do have a tumor, you run the risk of bursting that tumor and causing, if you do have a cancerous tumor, to spread. And it's not that the tumor in your breast is so completely deadly. It's encapsulated. But the, the deaths from breast cancer come from when the cancer metastasizes to other organs in the body. Mm -hmm. Breaks through the capsule, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Was it uh, Lynn Farrow that we did the interview with about iodine oh. helping yes. with breast cancer? Breastcancerchoices.org. Mm-hmm. And remind me what she said about when you get a diagnosis, it's like, what is the survival rate that that's what you need to, to ask? Like, so it's back to that whole idea of medical intervention. Like, say you do get a positive re test result. Yeah. And do you remember that, Gabby? I know that. Not the details, but I know that it's just like from all breast cancers, it's just a minor percentage that are really, really bad, you know? Mm-hmm. And the rest of them, you can even let them be. It's kind of like prostate cancer, you know, mm -hmm. and nothing will happen, you know. You mm -hmm. you will outlive the cancer. You know? <laughs> anyway, and uh, yeah, that's the controversy. Pretty much like prostate cancer. Like some people say, oh, yeah, don't touch it because it never grows, you know, kind mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you would have died of natural causes before anything actually became cancerous and you would die from that. And yeah. if you're having children or childbearing years, to breastfeed mm -hmm. is it causes a huge reduction in incidence of breast cancer. And don't put your cell phone in your bra. <laughs> uh, I was going to say that too because I read a case of a woman who had breast cancer and she had that, you know, mm -hmm. little thing of putting her cell phone, her smartphone in her bra. And it was exactly, she got the cancer in the same spot where she put the cell phone. Yeah. That was not smart. No. But lots of women do it. Darwin Award. <laughs> they, they don't know. They don't know what they're doing. It's That's sad. true. Yeah. The same with the mammograms. I mean, women are really, they get really very nervous. I've seen them, you know. It creates a lot of distress. 
Mm-hmm. Like if there is something suspicious, it's like, you know, it's like dying every day, you know, like they go through it like in a million ways. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, I've never seen a woman so stressed out as a woman in the waiting room waiting for her results or a comment and information that, that she could receive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my mother like had a, a false positive mammogram once and she freaked out. And then she went back to the doctor and was like, oh, no, we were wrong. <laughs> Just all this stress for nothing. She never had another one after that, and I don't blame her. (laughs) It's not worth it, really. (laughs) Well, my grandmother had breast cancer and actually had uh, her breasts removed. Mm -hmm. Um, And then just recently had another friend that had breast cancer and had her breasts removed. Does that change things? Or, I mean, talk about removing lady bits, like... Does it really help? Do you know? I mean, does it, if you just cut it off, does it not spread? And we'll go into a little bit of this when we talk about mm-hmm. hysterectomies because, you know, it's kind of that slice, burn, remove approach. Is it for the best? Mm. I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, they have, have to look particles. at the body holistically. And a lot of cancers are tied to diet. So if you have your breast chopped off to prevent cancer or to get rid of a cancer that you have, and you still have the same lifestyle, still exposes the same toxins, the same environmental degradation, the same diet, that doesn't guarantee that you're never going to get cancer anywhere else in your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like Lynn Farrow said, you know, it's mostly due to iodine deficiency. Mm-hmm. So start All taking things. that iodine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had to take it. What about yearly pelvic exams? Oh, no. The dreaded visit to the gynecologist. <laughs> Are women in the U.S. indoctrinated for that? Yes. Okay. Yeah, like a place like... <laughs> A place like Planned Parenthood will not see you or give you birth control Mm -hmm. or anything unless you have a pleasantly known pap smear. Yeah. That happened to me in college. Uh, They wouldn't give me any birth control pills unless I had a pap smear. Huh. It's such an awful procedure. And what are they testing for? Cervical cancer. Hmm. Yeah, and they do a test now that they have a liquid. Well, it's a test to see if there's the virus, the human papilloma virus there or not. Mm -hmm. So, but from what I've seen in Spain, it's like, yes, it's like a pelvic examination. It's a must. And you see women, women from all ages, like, after their 60s, you know, they're just used to it. The damn thing. They just arrive and, you know, and they just dissociate everything. They just seem to not care. But it breaks my heart to see a teenager, a very shy girl. It's just like it's pure torture, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, if anyone wants to see the implement that's used, just look at the slideshow in the uh, show description. It, it just looks like torture. It yeah. is. It is torture, it's actually. pretty big. And it opens inside. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's bad enough having a stranger look and put their fingers up there. But to have 
cold steel implements put into there and have them swab swab inside your cervix is really no picnic. And all of that, and it doesn't even lead to any kind of reduction in morbidity or mortality. They're no better at predicting who will get cervical cancer and who won't just from who has a pelvic, a yearly pelvic exam or not. Mm-hmm. It's just a way to line the pockets of your gynecologist. More medical intervention, which leads us to oh, our... This is the worst ever. Hysterectomy. That's and serious the stuff. One, the, the, it's the, ooh, ophorectomy. 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 Is that how you say it? Yeah. Have you ever seen that surgery? No. No. I think that's among, yeah, I've seen surgeries of surgeries and yeah, you can say heart surgery is pretty invasive, but for some reason, yes, watching a hysterectomy, it feels visceral, like, what mm-hmm. are you doing? <laughs> you just, just, it does how seem many? to be more and more common. I'd say out of 10 girlfriends, I know at least five have had it oh and we're about gosh. the same age. And they were all told, based on the pap smear, that they had, you know, a negative whatever test and that we just need to remove it. And for one of them, they removed everything, Mm. even lymph nodes. Mm. So does it help? No. (laughs) Okay. So here's some statistics. Yeah. There are over 700,000 oophorectomies. That's when they remove your ovaries. Over 700,000 of those every year, but there's only 22,000 cases of ovarian cancer. So allegedly this procedure is done on women because they have cancer in their ovaries and they need to take it out. I can understand that reasoning, even though if I was in that position, I would try some alternative methods before I let them yank out my lady bits. But there's only 22,000 cases of ovarian cancer, yet 700,000 of these procedures are done every year. And it's Why? considered inpatient. Like they don't have to go to a hospital, uh-huh. right? They, you uh-huh. can just do it in the, in the clinic. Mm-hmm. The four, four, $4 billion a year industry. Yeah. What I want to know is what they're doing with that stuff. You think they just throw uh, it in the trash? I, I don't know. know. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Me neither. (laughs) I don't know. Considering that Planned Parenthood sells baby bits, there's probably a market for lady bits. Human trafficking kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Organ trafficking. So there's 830,000 hysterectomies done every year, but there's only 70,000 cases of endometrial and cervical cancer. Yeah, it's overdone, literally. Really overdone. Like a big reason for a lot of these hysterectomies is because women have fibroid tumors, which are benign. They're not cancerous. And a lot of times they'll go away with dietary changes or other natural remedies or they'll go away when a woman goes into menopause, yet they're doing all these hysterectomies. And they're not telling women this. 
Yeah, the it's whole also, informed the fi- consent thing. Yeah. Yeah. The fibers are also like the iodine deficiencies. Like mm-hmm. we have all these nutrient problems, deficiencies, and people are just fixing it with mutilation, with, you know, basically castration. This is where not having enough knowledge really comes and bites you in the ass. Because if you don't know that there's ways to cure your fibroid and you go in for a surgery and allegedly the doctor is just going to remove your fibroid, maybe the doctor sees that you have a lot more fibroids than they thought you had. Or maybe during the procedure to remove some of these fibroids, there's a lot of bleeding and the doctor freaks out and they're like, Let's just take the whole uterus out. Did it tell? Did you it, can't. You can't say anything. And uh, do they tell the woman and in informed consent that this is a possibility, or does it happen in the U.S. that no? You know? No. <sighs> Who knows what they say? So much of it is based on fear, or you're going to die, or you're going to get cancer, and we have to do this. But there's one really awful, awful, awful story about this woman and I'm not sure if she had fibroids. No, no, no. She had some kind of disorder where her abdomen distended and they were going to do surgery to remove her uterus. And she agreed to that. But then the day of the surgery, they came in with a consent form and then the consent form, it said they weren't just going to remove her uterus. They were going to remove her ovaries and her cervix also and she's like no way i didn't sign up for this i'm not going to sign this you better bring the doctor in here the doctor never came and i think the anesthesiologist came into the room and injected her with versed which put her to sleep without her consent and they took her into surgery without her consent and they had her mother sign the consent while she was in surgery and the mother didn't know that they added all these extra things into the surgery and that her daughter refused to consent to that surgery. So they took her to surgery, they removed everything, and she woke up and she was castrated, basically, is what is what an oophorectomy is. It's female castration. So she was just distraught. She said her emotions felt dampened. She was she felt crazy. She felt depressed. She couldn't relate to people. Her sex life was ruined. And this was a letter that she wrote to the doctor. And on the site that I, I read it on, it said that it was a suicide note. And I don't know if she actually committed suicide, but her life was ruined from this. And there's loads and loads and loads of stories of women who have had hysterectomies or had their ovaries removed and their their lives are ruined. Well, they go through instant menopause, right? Yeah. They age. Yeah. They can't have sex. They can't have orgasms. It's just awful. Well, and then their immune system shuts down too, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, this... Uh, is a rheumatologist, Dr. Sarah Walker. They talk about how your uterus is vital for immunity. Mm-hmm. And I think this was on this website called Hormones Matter. It's called the Miraculous Uterus. And it just talks about all these things that start to cascade mm-hmm. once you have those yeah. organs removed, those bits yeah. removed. You're at risk for Parkinson's and dementia and osteoporosis. There's and you can't replace all of the hormones that you produce. Like 
people will say that after you've had kids or after menopause, you don't really need your uterus anymore. Yeah, that's excuse. It just gets in the way. But there's all these hormones that you need, and the, the ovaries still produce hormones even after menopause. I mean, you still need that, and no amount of synthetic hormones can replace what your body does naturally. And that's, that's not, true. That's not even the worst of it. I mean, that's pretty bad. But women who have these hysterectomies, they notice that their their figures change. They have back and hip and midsection pain. They have pelvic pain. They have bladder and bowel issues, like they can't hold their bladder or control their bowels. They have increased risk of cancer. Their vaginas can be too short. They get all these vaginal infections. And the worst thing, like when they take out all of your lady bits, that is a space that they've taken up inside your abdominal cavity. So when they remove those bits, other organs fall down into their place. And there's this awful pictures that I saw on the internet of women's intestines that come out through their vagina because they no longer have their uterus in the space where it used to be. So all the organs just fall down or prolapse is what they call it. It's just awful. Well, it made me think of a car as kind of ridiculous as that sounds. And, you know, it's not running well. So you just take out the oil pump Mm -hmm. and and hope for the best. I mean, your car's not going to (laughs) run. It's got to feel awful. Mm -hmm. Have something there. That doesn't belong there. Mm-hmm. Well, and then all the hormonal side effects afterwards, right? And feeling yeah, for the like, rest of your life. Yeah. Here's something really shocking that I read when 2013. Well, we know from, you know, even books on sex offenders, psychology on sex offenders and so, and so forth. Mm-hmm. It's that in general in the world, it is considered moral. And barbaric, surgically castrate convicted sex offenders. You really have to go through a lot of ethical loops and everything to justify a castration of somebody who is a malignant sex offender, you know. Mm-hmm. But all these surgeries in women, they are also like a, you know, castration. And there you yeah. go. There's no ethical um, query or anything. It's just done, you know. By the thousands, nearly a million, you know, castrations per year in the United States alone. Mm-hmm. No, no, it's not a problem for anybody. You just do it, you know. Well, that was what was so scary about the reading is that they do it in these clinics. So it's not even a hospital setting where, I, I mean, other than having a baby in yeah, a hospital, crazy. I've never spent much time there. But it would, <laughs> I would, it would seem that it would be, at least in a hospital, you'd get that informed consent. By the way, this is what we're taking out. Not like the, But informed the story. consent is not so informed. They don't yeah. tell you everything. They say, oh, there might be risk of death, anesthesia, blah, blah, blah. They're not going to say your entire life is going to be ruined. You'll never have enjoyable sex again for the rest of your life, and you'll feel like a zombie. Yeah. They're not going to say that. In yeah, the that's true. <laughs> the same with uh, tube ligation, you know, yeah, like uh, when you uh, do something to the tubes to avoid pregnancy, 
Mm-hmm. We got the name in English. Tying anyway. in a tube. Tubalogic. Yes. <laughs> yes, like, yeah, they don't explain women that they can have all sorts of hormonal problems because they don't even know that that happens, you know. It's so, like, mainstream medicine is so materialistic that they cannot imagine that by tying your tubes, it's going to change anything. It's just like, yeah, you tie it on, but that's it. And you won't get pregnant. (laughs) You won't get pregnant. Isn't that great? (laughs) (laughs) Unless you have a tubal pregnancy, which does happen, Mm -hmm. right? When they do that. Yeah. Which would mean now we just have to cut it all out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's horrible. (sighs) Yes, that's true. And the ovary, too. (laughs) Stay out of hospitals. Keep yourself off the chopping block. Take your eye (laughs) down. Yeah, it, it it just it, it's so mind blowing because you you think you're informed and you know and you take your supplements and you exercise and you mm-hmm. eat your saturated fat and then you read stories like this and and why isn't this taught in sex ed in schools? I know that's controversial to say, but mm-hmm. you know why not teach men and women or boys and girls about these types of things so they're at least a little bit informed. No, no, no. They gotta learn about transgenders. It doesn't matter if you have all your lady bits chopped off. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter if you change, if you take like these, you know, hormones, like, you know, mind altering Mm -hmm. hormones when you're four years old. You know, it's totally normal. Yes. Yeah, and if you're a boy, you can still become a woman without having the corresponding lady bits. So what difference does it make if you have lady bits or not? Well, should we go to the pet health segment, take a pause? (laughs) Yeah, unless anybody has anything else to add about lady bits. Yeah. Aside. Okay, well, the pet health segment is about pseudo-pregnancies in dogs. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today, I would like to share with you a recording by Dr. Karen Becker about false pregnancy or pseudo-pregnancy. It sometimes can be also called phantom pregnancy. It is a condition that can occur in intact female dogs. Listen up and have a great weekend. Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and false pregnancy, also known as pseudo-pregnancy, phantom pregnancy, or pseudosiesis, is a condition that can occur in intact female dogs. The condition can occur at any age and in any breed, but it's thought that it could be more prevalent in Dalmatians, Basset Hounds, and Pointers. False pregnancy is actually a normal physiologic process associated with normal reproductive organs, so there's no disorder happening. The condition typically develops between 45 and 60 days after a normal heat cycle when progesterone levels, which naturally rise after ovulation, begin to decline. The decreasing progesterone levels trigger an increase in the production of the hormone prolactin. Interestingly, Some female dogs show signs of false pregnancy within three to four days after being spayed, probably because spaying removes the source of the progesterone, the ovaries, and triggers prolactin production as well. 
Prolactin is responsible for most of the behaviors that occur during a dog's false pregnancy and can range from barely noticeable to impossible to ignore. Sometimes the dog seems so convincingly pregnant that even experienced breeders can begin preparing for a litter of puppies. Signs can include behavioral changes such as fluctuations in appetite, excessive vocalization, whining, restlessness, aggression, depression, or anxiety. Mothering behaviors such as nesting, digging, or adopting a toy, a stuffed animal, or other object around the house is also very common. Mammary changes absolutely occur, obviously, so the mammary chains will become engorged and they begin producing milk, and self-nursing is also very common. Abdominal distension can occur, and occasionally vomiting and nausea are also noted. The fact that some intact non-pregnant female dogs could produce milk could actually be an indigenous design of nature, because in the wild, adult females without pups are actually regularly called upon to nurse orphan litters. Diagnosing a false pregnancy is actually very straightforward. Your veterinarian will conduct a physical exam, take a history of your dog's symptoms and behavior, as well as determine if she went through heat in the last 6 to 12 weeks. Since female dogs carry litters of puppies for about two months, if it's been longer than that since your dog's heat cycle, it's very unlikely that she's pregnant. And obviously, in most of the time in those situations, because most people are quite responsible, that is not occurring. But an x-ray or an abdominal ultrasound can be used to definitively determine if your dog is pregnant and can eliminate the need for other diagnostic tests unless your vet thinks that it's really necessary. These imaging tests can also check for a pyometra, which is a bacterial infection of the uterus that can be life-threatening. Rarely, a female dog showing signs of false pregnancy actually was pregnant and either spontaneously aborted or reabsorbed her puppies. If this is the case, then her risk for developing pyometra is actually very, very high. An uncomplicated false pregnancy typically resolves on its own and no medical intervention is needed. However, since certain diseases such as hypothyroidism and liver dysfunction can prolong symptoms of pseudopregnancy due to altered hormone metabolism, some dogs exhibiting uh, unusually long false pregnancy, so if symptoms go over eight weeks, you should definitely screen your dog for one of these different diseases. When it comes to home care of a pet experiencing pseudopregnancy, some dog parents and breeders uh, may want to apply hot or cold conferences. I don't recommend that because actually it can stimulate more milk production. Some people also put an e-collar on their dog or a t-shirt to prevent the dog from self-nursing, and I do agree with that. It is important that you hide any items that she wants to um, carry around or try and mother, uh, and just removing all those things that help stimulate more hormone production is really a good idea. If your dog's symptoms are really significant, your vet may suggest skipping nighttime meals uh, for several days in a row to help reduce milk production. Some veterinarians also prescribe diuretics and mild sedatives. I actually prefer, of course, a more natural approach and usually start with homeopathic pulsatilla or sepia, depending on your dog's individual symptoms. Hormone therapy is also sometimes used by conventional veterinarians to manage a false pregnancy if the symptoms are really, really bad. I don't recommend synthetic hormones for any mammal on this planet unless the situation is affecting everyone's quality of life profoundly. There's actually some really nice supplements that can help reduce prolactin levels, which are actually the same herbs that are used to help lactating human moms dry up or cease milk production. If necessary, you can offer these to your dog. They include sage, chickweed, lemon balm, oregano, parsley, and peppermint. I've used very successfully some of these over-the-counter preparations that you can buy at health food store for lactating humans on dogs. And you're just going to work with your integrative veterinarian on dosing down or scaling down the dose that's acceptable for your particular dog. 
If you're planning to sterilize your dog, you'll need to wait until all signs of false pregnancy have been resolved. So I recommend spaying an anesterist, which is halfway through your dog's cycle to make sure that there's no hormone activity. Well, thank you, Zoya, for that. That was very informative. So, for our show today, we did come up with some solutions that aren't so crazy intervention-wise. Mm-hmm. We did do a radio show, gosh, was it a, almost a year ago, maybe even longer, uh, called The Iodine Crisis, and that's the interview with Lynn Farrow, and she does talk a lot about women's health and iodine and the importance of supplementing with iodine, especially for breast cancer mm-hmm. issues. And fibroids. Mm-hmm. Fibroids, yeah. Yeah. So just research, research, research. Do not have your lady bits chopped off. Men, don't let your lady get her bits chopped off. <laughs> Basically, you want to avoid all surgery unless it's yes. very extremely strictly necessary. Yeah. If you had like some bad accident and they t- need to sew your arm back on or something, that's yeah. fine. And again, that documentary that we recommend is the business of being born, mm-hmm. especially for anyone that is pregnant or looking to have a baby. It's just really good information uh, that you do have choices mm-hmm. and not to be afraid. Yes. So anything else, ladies? No. All right. So thank you all. Uh, listeners and chatters and be sure to tune in to Sunday's show and next week we will be joined by our gentlemen cohorts with another interesting health topic. Bye!